Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, welcome again. Um, as Ryan said, we're so glad to have you this morning. Um, if you're new with us, we are continuing our study through John's Gospel in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me to John chapter 7, verse 37. There are Bibles on offer to you this morning in the pews. Um, you'll also find our passage, as always, printed for you in our order of worship. Before we read, just uh, something to think about for our, our young disciples uh, of all ages, young Christians. Um, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not new. He mentioned the Spirit quite a bit in his uh, dialogue with Nicodemus back in chapter 3, but we're going to get more on the Holy Spirit as we go. So here's a question for you as we think about the passage we're about to read. What does the Holy Spirit do fundamentally? What does the Holy Spirit do? And then this, what is he waiting on? What is he waiting on in our passage this morning? With that in mind, would you stand now for the reading of God's holy word? John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37 through verse 52. John writes, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we do pray for your spirit. We thank you that you have not left us without witness to yourself, but that you've given us your very word and your spirit. And we pray by his power at work within us that we would better know, love, worship the gift of your son this morning. Would you conform us more and more into his image through our time together? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I I think it's probably likely that this time last Sunday, um, no one in here knew the name Damar Hamlin. And now many of us know that name because Hamlin has been in the news all week. He is uh, the young player for the Buffalo Bills who suffered cardiac arrest on the field that stemmed from a tackle that he made in a game last Monday night. 
Like many of you, I'm sure I was watching that game live when the play happened and watched a lot of football over the break. Um, As a football fan, uh, sorry to say this, but you get kind of numb to injuries on the field because they occur so often. And usually what happens is the game stops, they cut to a commercial break, you don't see it often, the trainers rush out, they do their thing, they get the injured player off the field, the commercial is over, you have popcorn in hand, and you go back to the game. But you could tell pretty quickly after the commercial break that this was a very different situation, and the way you could tell was by looking at the response on the players' faces. You couldn't see Hamlin on the field at all. All of them were just overwhelmed with emotion. There was fear on their faces. Many of them pretty quickly were, were crying, visibly crying. Um, they were together from both teams, together. Some had even started to break off into small groups and were bowing to pray on the field. And then soon after that, reports started rolling in about Hamlin having to be resuscitated on the field. And then all of a sudden, this young man, who was virtually unknown before that moment, becomes this national story to whom people feel connected, so much so that his charity, most NFL players or professional athletes have some charity, his charity, which is a toy drive in Pittsburgh where he's from, he has set his goal for his charity to raise $2,500, pretty modest goal, and that charity received over $7.5 million of donations just this week. It's a lot of toys. Of course, if you know the story, you know that he seems to be doing really well, all things considered. I'll tell you that this morning, though, because I want to draw a line to um, how people responded to Hamlin as an example of how the human heart often works. People respond to connection, even when that connection seems awfully thin. So this week, Hamlin's cause, his charity, his mission becomes the cause, the charity, the mission that football fans all over the country care about. What he cared about became what they cared about because they cared about him. And this is at the heart this morning of the first part of our passage in a much more deeper and enduring way. If you've been reading along with us in John's gospel, then you know that John's primary goal is to help us to know Jesus. We've said this over and over, for, for John, knowing Jesus means much more than just sort of knowing about him. It means actual connection with him. To use a theological word, it means union. It means having your, your heart so formed by him, by his his love and his grace by an experience of his power in your life that he becomes the living reality flowing out of you as well. And what he cares about is what you begin to care about too. Two things I want you to see from our passage this morning. They're both pretty simple. The passage breaks down pretty easily. I want you to see, first of all, how Jesus gives himself or presents himself on offer to us in verses 37 through 39. So first of all, this morning, we'll look at the invitation, the invitation of Jesus to us. And second of all, in verses 40 through 52, we're going to look at how people responded. And especially as it relates to a person we've already been introduced to, a man named Nicodemus. So the invitation and the response, we'll take those two things in order, starting in verse 37 with the invitation. 
The context here is really important, and the passages that we read leading up to this in our liturgy are really important to frame the context. But if you remember our passage from last week, Jesus has now gone up to Jerusalem as an observant Jew to participate in one of the major feasts. Probably a feast that we don't know very well. Ryan mentioned it. It's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a week-long feast in the fall after the harvest to commemorate after receiving the harvest the Lord's provision. And it happened to be a feast in which water played a prominent role. The feast took place directly before the rainy season, and so prayer for rain factored throughout the week into the tradition. But what was even more central to the feast was the water-drawing ceremony where priests and the people would begin outside the temple at a pool called Siloam. This was a spring-fed pool. Like I said, it was close to the temple. And in that pool, it was considered living water because there was flowing water into it. It was ritually pure water. And the priests would go to Siloam with the people, and they would draw water from that pool, and then they would process every day of the feast to the temple. And they would pour out the water on the altar of burnt offering in the temple. So not only was there this expressed hope for a good rainy season, but there was this much larger hope present in the feast for God's promised future that the passages we read in Ezekiel and Revelation lay out for us. That promised future was cast in the image of water flowing from the temple. From the presence of God that would revitalize and renew and heal the whole world. How does, how does the Bible end in Revelation 22? How does the Bible end? The angel showed me the river of the water of life. What was the water like? It was pure as crystal. It was flowing from the throne of God and the land, the temple, through the middle of the street, where it waters the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. That is Ezekiel's vision of the new temple. And John says, on the last day of this feast, on the great day, on the culminating day, Jesus stands up in the temple and he says what? If anyone is thirsty, that is to say, if anyone wants to be healed, well, let him come to me and drink. And whoever does that, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus is saying in that moment is that all that this feast represents, it all finds its fulfillment in me. If you remember back in John 2, in John 2, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the true temple. He is the true place where we get to meet with God in a reconciled way. Now he says he is the true refreshment that flows from that temple. He is the source of God's healing on offer to you this morning. Who can come and drink? You notice that? Anyone who is thirsty. Not anyone who has proved himself. Not anyone who has something to give Jesus in return. Not anyone who has committed enough or yielded enough or surrendered enough or worthy enough. It is anyone who is thirsty. Jesus is on offer to you precisely in your need for him. And he says, come to me. 
Then what does he give to those who come to him in faith? Look with me at verse 38. We've read it already twice. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see what Jesus is promising you there? That in your healing, he will recreate inside of you the temple like the one described in Ezekiel. In other words, your heart will be spring-fed from the presence of God inside of you. And that water is supposed to run, to flow, to give life to people into the world where God has placed you for its healing. We do this every week. Our call to worship is a call to people who are thirsty. Come thirsty. Come ready to drink. And then leave with God's what? His benediction. His blessing with his living water to give to the world. There's more about this source beginning in verse 39 there, and it's important for the passage, important for the rest of John's gospel. John writes this, he said this, he said this about the source, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. Be clear on this, what John is not saying that the Spirit was not already at work in God's people throughout history. We know that from the Old Testament. The Old Testament mentions the Holy Spirit regularly. What John means here is that the fullness of the Spirit's refreshment, the life that flows from him, well, there was still more to come. And the question is, well, what are we waiting for? Like, why wait? Why not right now? And John answers that question. He was waiting, he says, on Jesus to be glorified. And this is critically important. The hour of Jesus' glorification in John's gospel, which has been mentioned over and over and over again, the hour of that glorification begins at the cross. Now listen to what John says Jesus' final words are as he's crucified on the cross. This is chapter 19, verse 28. John writes this, After this, Jesus knowing that all was finished, his work was finished. What did he say? I thirst. I thirst. And why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus' finished work does not place him among the well-watered. His finished work places him among the thirsty. This is another way, a layered way of John saying that Jesus came into the world to place himself as a substitute for those who are thirsty, as a substitute for sinners. That he came to the place of our sin and misery. He identified himself with us and our brokenness. He was parched. He died thirsty in the desert of God's judgment. He was poured out. Why? So that you might be well watered. So that you might come to him and drink. In fact, after this, only a few verses later, after Jesus has died, again, John is the only one who records this, the soldiers go, and they pierce Jesus' side with a spear. And do you remember what it says next? From his side flowed what? Blood and water. That is to say, from the side of your crucified king, from the body of your atoning Savior, that's your healing. That's your healing. That's where you find the waters of life. So now we come back to the Holy Spirit. What in the world is the Spirit waiting on? He is waiting on Jesus' finished work so that the Spirit might draw from that well. 
the abundance of grace whose fullness you and I can never exhaust. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is confusing at times. It's mysterious. The Bible even presents it that way. Let me make it fairly simple a little bit this morning. Jesus gives us his spirit to give us himself. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to apply the finished work of Jesus to you and to make Jesus flow through you more and more. It's why we come to that table every week. Because our discipleship begins and our discipleship continues by coming to Jesus again, again, and again, and drinking. And now we have the response, the application in verses 40 through 52. Look there with me. So first John tells us about the crowd in verses 40 through 44. We won't linger there very much. The crowd, as we can see, is divided. It just goes to show that controversies about who Jesus is are as old as the Gospels themselves. This is not a new feature of modern secular life. But I want you to notice, too, that the division that they experience in the crowd is not only found among groups of people, it's also experienced in the people themselves. Look at the officers in verses 45 through 46. Put your eyes there. You know, earlier in chapter 7, the Jewish leaders had issued an official arrest warrant out for Jesus that wouldn't be fulfilled until later. And these were officers who had been sent from the temple. They weren't like policemen or thugs. They were Levites who had been sent to the temple to come and to bring Jesus in to, to, um, to make that warrant happen. And what did these Levites report back in verse 46? They couldn't arrest Jesus. Better said, they were unwilling to arrest Jesus because no one ever spoke like this man. And John's point here is that the, the authorities themselves in encountering Jesus feel a schism in their own hearts. So his words are doing exactly what he said they would. He's, he's speaking to them, he's teaching them, and they are, through his teaching, rethinking their deepest loyalties. Look at how the religious leaders respond then. It's what I want you to see. It's where we'll spend the bulk of our remaining time. The irony of what they say. Look at verse 47. They, they look at those leaders and they say, the, excuse me, the officers who've been sent to take Jesus in, and they say, have you also been deceived? And the rest of the passage is about that question. Who in the passage has really been deceived? Now listen to their own words in verse 49. This crowd, in other words, another way to translate that is these people of the land, this uneducated crowd that does not know the law, let them be accursed. So you've got to love it here. What does Nicodemus do? He raises his hand for a point of order. Excuse me, point of order. Um, doesn't our law that we all know so well doesn't it provide that a man gets a fair hearing and that judgment against that man is suspended until we all know the truth of his actions? In other words, shouldn't we be following the law too and allow Jesus to speak for himself? And how do they respond? Good point. They insult him. They insult Nicodemus. And here John reveals their ignorance, their own self-deception in two ways. First notice in verse 52, they assumed that Jesus was born where? 
in Galilee. Now we know that's not true. We know that he was actually born in Bethlehem, in David's own village, in Judea. So their refusal to give Jesus this fair hearing according to the law yields an ignorance of the basic facts about Jesus. They needed to make a sound judgment. But then look again at verse 52. Good advice here, by the way. They say, search and see. Search and see. And you'll find that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, John knows this, but if they were to take their own counsel, they were to search and see with an openness to the scriptures that they themselves were trained into, they would find prophets like Jonah and Nahum and others who also arose from Galilee. And what John is doing here is he's teaching us something through way of warning. And that warning is this. The fruits of a hard, self-righteous, arrogant heart are dangerous. And what are some of the characteristics of a heart that fits that description? Closure to fair judgment. The inability to receive instruction or correction. A reactive, defensive posture. Condescension. Insult to those you consider inferior. And then ultimately, the unwillingness to be self-critical, to be humble and to say, you know what, maybe I am wrong, maybe I do need to repent, maybe I need to say I'm sorry. Are those words hard for you? You know, when we think about sinful patterns that deserve serious attention in our discipleship, that should make us really concerned for ourselves and others, Self-righteousness, pride, should be at the top of that list. If the Bible tells us that there is hope for the hardest of hearts in the gospel, you know, one of the passages that would have gotten read during this feast, that would have been brought to mind for the celebrants, is the story of God providing water in the desert for the Israelites who were thirsty and wandering. Do you remember that story? Do you remember how God provided that water? It's Moses, he told his prophet Moses to take his staff and to do what? To strike a rock. And Moses did it. By the power of God's grace, what happened? Springs of living water flowed from the rock. God can make living water flow from the hardest of surfaces even the hardest of hearts. And often we see that in real time through some kind of gracious blow, some kind of gracious strike that we would all recognize as suffering. Now we don't know that occurred in Nicodemus's life, but we do know that Nicodemus was once in lockstep with this group. They were his people. And it is no coincidence that John puts him in this scene as he does one more time. He just sprinkles Nicodemus in, in his story. One more time at the end of the gospel, when Jesus' most faithful disciples have all scattered, and Jesus' body needs to be buried. And at that point, Nicodemus, at great risk to himself, has gone from where we met him, visiting Jesus in secrecy under the cover of night, to defending him before the Jewish high council, now taking care of his dead body 
all at great cost to himself in the most critical situations. And what we're seeing, at the very least, is a Pharisee being slowly transformed into a pool. I want you to think about this with me. So we've read this a couple times in different ways in our liturgy. The rivers of living water. At the end of time, the rivers of living water from Jesus are for the healing of the nations. Which means that one day, all those who have come to Jesus in faith to drink, we will all be healed. We'll all be transformed into our our truest selves, who we were made to be, our true humanity, after the image of Jesus. And in that moment, won't that mean that people that we've known who are hard-hearted and arrogant and abrasive and critical and cynical and condescending, won't they too stand among the healed? And won't we in that day know them and ourselves as gentle and as kind and as gracious and patient and humble? Because God has broken the rock and living water will flow. And that's our hope. Before we close this morning, let me just say one more thing as an addendum to those who may be here and yet not ready to come to Jesus and drink. Maybe you feel a nudge, maybe you have an interest, maybe even like these officers, you're beginning to feel a little torn in terms of questioning your own loyalties. I want you to listen again and take with you the wisdom of Nicodemus. Give Jesus a fair hearing. Don't close your heart and your mind off from him. Learn what he does. You know what's interesting in this passage? The religious leaders here and the crowd are both kind of obsessed with the origins of Jesus. Like, where is he from? Is he from Galilee? Is he from Nazareth? Is he from Bethlehem? Do you remember that John never records Jesus' place of birth at all? Because that's not the origin he cares about. What does John record? Jesus is the word made flesh. His truest origin is the throne of heaven. And from there, Jesus descended to reveal the heart of the Father. And that's the hearing I want you to give Jesus. Listen to what he says. Learn what he does. Judge for yourself in his words and actions if he is not the fullness of grace and truth and worthy of you bending the knee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us again this morning. And we do pray, Father, that you would soften us, that we would sense the Spirit's work in us even now to give us more of the life of your Son in us to flow through us, that we might be spring-fed. Lord, that we might leave here with flowing water to give to others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.